Okay. Welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, I'm super excited uh, to have Professor Darsha Narvaez here with us today. Um, she's uh, one of my favorite thinkers in the world of psychology. Uh, she's a professor at University of Notre Dame, uh, done all sorts of wonderful work. Uh, indeed, when I had the opportunity to be a program chair of uh, theoretical and philosophical psychology, I knew instantaneously who I wanted to invite as a keynote speaker, and it was Darsha. She came and gave a beautiful talk on some of the things that I hope we talk in today. Um, one of my favorite books of all time, she has there, and she wrote it, uh, Neurobiology, uh, Development, Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom. Darsha. Thanks so much for coming. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure so, to be with you. It's really, uh, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, so maybe we can just start with a little bit of your story and your background and how you got wound into uh, ultimately or, or fell into or whatever the place uh, that you did. But where where did it all, where did it start for you? Give us a little bit of your background. Well, it's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> so, often is. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think my interest in uh, early childhood started when I was a child living in other countries. I spent half my childhood in Spanish-speaking countries, mm. and I would see kids my own age on the corner selling gum, chiclet, hmm. uh, you know, barefoot rags, you know, right. sure. to make money for their family dinner or something. Right. And I would come back to the States because we'd be away for a year and come back for two years and then go away for a year. Come back to the States and then just was appalled at the injustice. It's like, how can mm. we have a hundred types of cereal uh, and there's someone there with no food? Right. <laughs> right. right. So uh, that always, uh, you know, I used to cry over these children. Mm -hmm. um, but so your, have, your sense of kinship with humanity runs deep, as I've always known. It does. <laughs> it does and it's global. I mean, it's not yep. like humanity. Right? <laughs> right. No, that's a big H, capital H there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And uh, but I have a lot of interests. So my college career started out as a world language major, ended up as a music major, pipe organ. And so I mm. went to uh, being a church musician. But I also taught in the Philippines K-12 music because that opportunity came around arose. And that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I uh, felt a call to the ministry. I was raised a Lutheran. Um, right. Uh, Missouri Synod, which is fundamentalist and mm -hmm. doesn't allow women to have leadership roles over men. Mm -hmm. uh, and so being called to ministry is like, well, I guess I'll go to hell. All right. Got to follow the heart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I I, uh, I went to a Lutheran seminary where they had, uh, not Missouri Synod, but another one where they were starting to allow women to be mm -hmm. ordained. And then when I was there, I realized that I really wasn't a Lutheran. Mm. <laughs> I, mean, I, couldn't, I couldn't preach the doctrine. Right. And so although it's, I, uh, I was going to say, I don't think this was written by a fundamentalist Christian. So something must have happened. <laughs> yeah, a lot of things happened. <laughs> uh, so I uh, got my degree in certified, but I never got ordained to be a minister because I couldn't, you know, face mm. being, you know, lying in the pulpit or something. Um, but it got me interested in grad school. Okay. And so uh, that was a good thing. But I, I didn't do that right away. I had my own business teaching Spanish to adults using super learning, which is relaxation, and drama and games, you know, and getting the brain all relaxed so that you can learn more easily. And 
Uh, and then I uh, worked in the Hispanic community in Minnesota, and I then got a job offer at a prep school to teach Spanish to middle school students. Wow. And okay. I, when I was a music teacher, I, I remembered which age I hated. <laughs> so hard. Middle school. Oh, universe is calling you. You got to, you know, <laughs> face <Yeah>. it. <laughs> so mm. I and first year was hellish, but I loved the kids mm. stay there four years. But in the middle of that, I found my vocation of moral <laughs> development. <clears throat> so I had been uh, my uh, seminary professor had recommended that I be on a committee that studied the common good for Lutheran world ministries, where we <clears throat> we uh, read books and met twice a year, and we're gonna write a some volume or something. Uh, and I got assigned Carol Gilligan's book in a different voice, <clears throat> and so my bishop friend said, oh, we should talk to my neighbor, Jim Rust, because he does moral development. So I went to talk to him. He just uh, taught at the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, read my, my latest book. So I read his latest book and I go, oh, this is what I want to study. So I applied to work with him okay. this, at Minnesota. Yeah. Then I ended up falling in love with him. So I just switched advisors. That happens. That happens. I know. Uh, so I ended up, yeah, my, my dissertation was not quite the same as what I expected, but it was fine. It was moral discourse processing because my advisor was in reading comprehension. Mm. Was uh, this a, uh, would you get your doctorate in developmental psychology? Was that the yeah, actual educational book? psychology? Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's gotcha. where moral development was. Learning right. cognition. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. The area, foundations. Um, and then the... Uh, my husband, uh, I married my advisor, former advisor, and uh, he had a degenerative disease, though. And so uh, we he went to the dean and asked if he could if I could share his job um, because he was uh, having more problems. And uh, the dean saw my vita and said, no, we'll give you your own job. <laughs> ah, okay. So I ended up uh, getting a tenure track job there and Beautiful. got tenure there. Um and my husband died, and I, um, so I, I had been, when I was there, I was doing lab studies. That's what I'd done with my advisor, um, my second advisor, and uh, they put me in a curriculum and instruction department, mm -hmm. primarily, instead of ed psych, and uh, that, they started telling me right before the last couple of years of my tenure decision, before the tenure decision, that I had to do curriculum instruction, Luckily, uh, there was uh, federal money for character mm. education. A million dollars was set aside per state. Wow. Minnesota had not asked for theirs. And so I wrote a grant for that. And luckily, uh, well, I couldn't submit it myself, it turned out. I found mm. someone at the Department of Education to be partner with me. And then we mm. submitted and got that money. So oh, beautiful. that ensured my tenure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I got an education. I know how that works. <laughs> Yeah, helping teachers across the state shape their regular instruction, academic instruction, so that they're also teaching ethical or moral skills, ethical skills. We call it ethical uh, because moral sounds, ah, it's about sex, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. no. <laughs> uh, and then um, Notre Dame, when my husband died, uh, Notre Dame had been trying to get me to come and give a talk and see if I wanted to come over here because they like my idea. And so I ended up uh, moving to Notre Dame. Uh, in 2000 mm. and in Notre Dame there's no education department mm. and uh so I tried to work with the schools but no child left behind came in mm. and then 
had two hours a week in a middle school to work on character education. Mm -hmm. uh, but a new superintendent came in and reorganized things, and they ended up with two minutes a week. Yeah. So our year-long collaboration. Character on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of that. So then I started to, I always read widely anyway, but I started, I stumbled into hunter-gatherer childhoods and uh, the anthropological research on peaceful societies that breastfeeding matters, right. two and a half years right. of breastfeeding. Right. Uh, and lots of touch and uh, neuroscience, how important what the brain, the mammal brain looks like, what are the emotion systems and how early experience shapes what happens. Alan mm -hmm. Shore's work and attachments. Yeah, uh, concepts who, who get right something in the book, right? So <laughs> like, oh, my God, my mind was exploding. Like, how did how did they not tell me this in graduate school? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody forgot we were primates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's been my story since I found mm. that. I was like, oh my God, we got to change everything. You know, morality starts in the womb. <laughs> Beautiful. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that's a really uh, nice segue into some really key things. One of the most uh, beautiful things you articulated, in my estimation, is the thing called the evolved nest. Uh, and I'd like to evolve in a conversation towards that. But maybe you can talk a little bit about what you mean by character education and moral development uh, at that stage, and then how you came to see, you know, sort of this embodied, embedded um, indigenous view uh, over time. So let's start with sort of like, yeah, how did you approach character education at that stage? And then you evolved into this more holistic, rich indigenous view over time. So may, I'd like to really track that for folks. Yeah. So when I started grad school, there was still the bias towards reasoning. And that's what morality is about. As long as mm. you make a good decision, and you have yep. the will to follow it. That's morality. And then you're a good person, right? Uh, my my husband, late husband, Jim Rust, uh, pointed out that there's much more involved that you have to notice. Well, I call it moral perception. Uh, you have to notice there's an issue, right? And you have to be uh, aware that you have a role to play. You know, someone's house is on fire or a child's running into the street. Are you going to do anything? Well, you're gauging very quickly whether the mother's nearby, how old the child is, if you yell at them or you have to run after them or whatever. All that sensitivity and perception and mm. not judgment per se. It's not reasoning about what's the most moral thing to do, which is important. Right. But uh, then there's motivation. There's identity. Do you, is this, uh, if you're in a Brahmin in India and you're walking mm -hmm. by an untouchable, you're not going to want to help them because your cultures and your identity, sure. you stay away from them, right? So mm -hmm. and then there's action capacities. So how skilled are you at doing something? There was a guy mm. who uh, jumped down and saved a woman who fell on the subway track in mm. New York City some years ago. Mm -hmm. right? I remember that story. He yep. rolled her off the track and all this. And everyone says, why doesn't everybody do that? Well, this guy was Marine, had been a Marine, and he trained all for all sorts of things like that. So you so there's an expertise, a self-efficacy, you know, the ability to, um, you know, mm -hmm. to have confidence to do, mm -hmm. and then to have the ego strength to persevere, right? You might have wanted to, and you did save uh, Jews in your attic from the Nazis, but then the family starts to complain and say, we want to go to on vacation to the mountains. All right. <laughs> Bye, everybody. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Don't. Gave up, right? Ego right, persistence. Sure. Uh, dissolved because of the pressure or whatever it is so you know morality is a lot more complicated so what we did with our teachers and our we developed books guidebooks uh well 
we took these, we call them four components. So ethical sensitivity, ethical judgment, ethical motivation, and ethical action. And we mm. then split those into skills, seven skills each. And then we talked to the teachers. We're collaborating with them, you know, and, and saying, well, why don't you uh, come up with subskills? Because that wasn't detailed enough yet. And said, so, no, you do it. And so, <laughs> so for each of the seven skills out of the four components, we developed multiple subskills. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, right. You got 28 then, categories and now all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Then um. we uh, put them into books based on a novice to expert learning pedagogy. Ah, right. Okay. So if your students know nothing, all right, here, give them the big picture. So yep. you give them the big picture, uh, and here are some activities you can do, you know, for social studies, for science, for this and that. And then if they already know the big picture, then you got to focus in on some skills and details. All right, here's some suggestions for that. If they already have that much, well, now they got to practice procedures. How do they apply it, you know, in this way or that way, <clears throat> or combine skills? And then once they've gotten that far, then you go to across context. Can they do it across context? So when you learn to swim, you know, uh, you were probably a baby at the swimming pool or the lake or the ocean. You saw people mm -hmm. interacting. That's a big mm -hmm. picture. You say, oh, these people mm -hmm. are moving through the water. Wow. Mm -hmm. And then you start to practice. You start to kick your own legs or your mm -hmm. arms, whatever. Sure. Yeah, those are skills, right? Then you have to put them together, the procedures, mm -hmm. right? Arms mm -hmm. and legs. And then you want to learn, be able to swim in the pool, but also in the lake, right? Mm -hmm. So that's across context. So, so that's the approach we used. Um, and then the books are, they're available online. Mm -hmm. Uh, we can put maybe put a link somewhere if mm. uh, there are. Yeah, I can put links in the show notes. The, the earlier versions of them. We also have published versions mm. that are like fifteen dollars each, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so it gives you all the background information mm. and then uh, you know hundreds of ideas what to yeah. do, plus other how, stuff. How did you feel that was implemented? Did you feel that uh, kids could really uh, learn this and absorb it and trans you know make a real difference in there? Good question. Yeah. So it depended on the school. Okay. Uh, so we did a, a pre-post evaluation year the last mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. uh, we had a comparison school where they didn't do anything. And then we had different levels of integration that schools did. So we mm -hmm. had suggested the ultimate um, Cadillac version. <laughs> the Cadillac version <laughs> was to do things in homeroom or advisory period to do school-wide activities as well as integrate into every uh, subject matter. And so there was a school or two that did that. Mm. And then there are other schools that just did homeroom advisory or just did a few of the classes <laughs> or something like that. And we found that that made a difference, right? So, Clearly trained as behavioral scientists. Huh? You, have good, <laughs> you know, you can break out and, and develop little ideas about what mechanisms might be operating and what totalities might be operating. It's good to see. Not that I'm surprised given your training, yeah. but I just noted. Yeah. But the problem with our approach, our approach was a, what we call a common morality. We present mm -hmm. you these whole set of skills, sub-skills, and the method, novice to expert pedagogy. Mm -hmm. You, the teachers, educators, the team, of hopefully a parent on the team, whoever's deciding here, you have to decide which your, what your students need, what your community needs, mm -hmm. and select the, the skills that you're going to address, okay. and how, and who, and mm -hmm. when. Uh, and then so everybody has their so that's a common morality because it mm. comes to a unique um, uh, implementation that mm. nobody else does it the same way. Right. So mm -hmm. that's like, how oh, you measure this. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Right. Yeah. So that's that's an issue. Right. But that's that's local control. That's what you want. Yeah. Mm. And you did that for a couple of years. And then is it when did you then begin to make the shift from our sort of 
traditional psychological, you know, Kohlberg into Gilligan morality or whatever, wherever you were in relationship to that education. And then you started to evolve into a, uh, a more indigenous perspective, right? Well, I was always or, interested in more in the expertise. That's mm-hmm. the cognitive science part I brought mm-hmm. to that uh, mm-hmm. approach that enough to, to think, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, you need know-how, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of all kinds. Um, and what is that? How do you become a master? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think in the, in the writing of the book is how I transformed, right? The, I had a book proposal that was different than what the book turned out to be. I mean, that's mm. kind of normal, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the book taught me, you know, mm. it led, led me to the indigenous perspective. It's like mm. all these things. Is, this, is it this book you're for? Yeah, for, that book. The, yeah. Like your classic. You have several, so I just want to be clear. <laughs> that book, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So it took me a while to write. It took a year to get all the permissions. They made me get all the permissions. If you had more than 300 words uh, quoted from anybody to get permission. Yeah. But um, so it was the, in the works. I wrote a earlier article and to publish in 2008, which was the initial uh, uh, kind of blow your mind kind of view that, you know, neurobiology matters for morality. Come on. If you're, if you're um, stressed, you're not going to think as well. And we know your blood flow shifts, you know, it goes to your muscles, you know, you're going to fight flight, you know, whatever it is, you're not going to, you know, observe and think in this the detached way that the Western world prefers uh, or has been preferring lately. Uh, and so you have to pay attention to who you are and you can create personalities that are very oriented, racing against the other, you know, and then they rationalize whatever it is that they externalize, right, to blame others for. Uh, and we see so much of that. I've seen that occasionally in the clinic room, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all over the country now. Mm, oh. yeah. <clears throat> So when you undercare for kids, when you don't provide the evolved nest, you're going to end up then with these stress, easily stressed brains, triggered, right? And that's such a common mm-hmm. phrase now, uh, because we forgot how you raise a, a, a well-functioning mm-hmm. human being. We forgot what basic needs are for right. for young people and for us too, mm-hmm. right? We, a lot of parents are mm-hmm. oriented to the animal needs, you know, nourishment, shelter, warmth, mm-hmm. as if that's enough. No. Right. Babies need play and they need affection and bonding. They need multiple caregivers they bond with so they can practice different ways of being with other people. They need, you know, uh, to be involved in community activities. So they're actually, you know, growing their capacities as well. I mean, there's lots of things that we forgot. And we isolate kids in their own age groups. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, That's crazy. That makes competition rather than cooperation. They love to learn from older kids, you know, and the older love to teach the younger and, you know, hang out. Right. So we've done, gone in the wrong direction in so many ways, in part because of the uh, focus on money-making. Capitalism has really, well, civilization, I think 10,000 years or so ago, started to shift us away from the evolved nest, from meeting basic needs, uh, because hierarchy then starts to that because you get hierarchy with civilization and then that starts to neglect basic needs because you're just trying to keep the system going to feed the top right yep yeah so let's talk a little bit about that i'll, I'll or we'll make a you talking bridge here so i like to talk about the body uh, at the core organism to animal level so that's your you know core fight flight pleasure pain you got to have survival got to have territorial 
needs kind of regulated at some level. What you know, the base of the Maslow, but then there's the heart, really, the, the primate heart. And that primate heart is the attachment system, the felt sense of affiliation, the felt sense of belonging, or the polyvagal threat defense system that you're about ready to be ejected or you're isolated or you're disconnected or you're in an alien uh, environment. And that the fundamental difference in how to create a webbed felt sense of being known and valued across multiple socio-relational contexts is um, crucial and clearly something our society um, is, well, not optimizing. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> to say it kindly. <laughs> Jesus. Um, and then something. So and the other thing to be very aware of uh, or uh, here's a frame that I like and I think that, you know, be very consistent. So yeah, about 10 to 5, you know, 12, wherever uh, thousands, but certainly by 5000 years ago, huge transition from an oral indigenous uh, nomadic horticultural lifestyle uh, back into real full fledged hunter gatherer lifestyles 100,000 years ago creates a particular type of oral indigenous relational network. Um, between individuals and the world, the natural world, um, across lots of different environments. There's a, and so that what I will invite you then to talk about is, despite a wide variety of different hunter-gatherer, of course, environments and contexts, there are also some real threads uh, that emerge in these uh, uh, cultures and contexts and uh, hunter-gatherer societies um, that really speak to our evolved human natures. And so I want you to talk about that. Um, I want folks to, and people will be aware of it, but let's really be clear that there was then a shift into agriculture and the evolution of certain kinds of technologies that tip us into civilization. Um, this civilization then was defined really by cities and the network of cities. And the thing about cities is they basically create a completely different kind of technological bubble, um, organized technological bubble that's radically different than uh, the hunter-gatherer societies lived in. Um, it also one of the things that's very different that I think you're speaking to is, you know, resource distribution now becomes radically different. You can hold on to resources. There becomes a, an opportunity for a dramatic hierarchical structure in human organization. There are needs for it. If you're going to have 5,000 people living in a city, there's needs for it. But there's also then opportunities for dramatic differentiation of resources. Um, and so we really see then human civilization through Bronze Age evolved and the Bronze Age collapse. We see a reemergence of uh, you know, civilization, societies, the axial age. Um, so for me, this is all then the emergence of traditional formal civilization in our period. And things like writing, cities, uh, money, um, change, and our other technologies radically change, um, well, the old indigenous oral nature structure. Um, uh, then we also get another huge change about 500 years ago with, you know, modernity, uh, the shift into capital labor relations, the emergence of sort of hyper-rationalistic scientific capacities, uh, massive technological changes, uh, emerging globalization. Um, over the last 50, what's that? Colonization. colonization. Yeah, well, actually, uh, I was going to weave that into the final 50 years, or more or less, everything's here rough. You get a postmodern critique of modernity, uh, both in terms of some of its claims uh, to, you know, some of the scientific claims, uh, and man, most notably, the justice claims. And uh, care about earth, care about marginalized voices. Um, so for me, I like to think about the evolution of uh, human uh, sort of cultural conscious sensibilities through the oral indigenous, traditional, formal, modern, and then postmodern. Um, and somehow, is there a way to see that and pull the insights from 
those. And in particular, what I really love what you're doing is there's an enormous amount of grounding insights for wise living from the oral indigenous um, traditions that we need to somehow re-remember. And I think you're an absolute leader in that. So I just wanted to lay that out for folks and then see if you wanted to pick up on any of that threading. Just one thing to add is the nature disconnection. So with the scientific revolution and the philosophical Western enlightenment, uh, the natural world was assumed to be dead and inert. I mean, Descartes and all that, all that mattered was the mind and the humans and white males, essentially. Uh, everything else was, you know, to be used and uh, manipulated. Totally. So I think that's really still here. Yep. Uh, and we are, you know, it's so infused so that we don't realize it's everywhere, you know, and that, that uh, bias against the body and the bias against nature and the past you know, all oh, the past, you know, we don't yep. go back to living in huts, uh, you know, blah, 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 as if we're not saying that. We're saying honor your genes, your ancestry, and what your uh, social mammalian nature needs. Beautiful. Uh, and people seem to, you know, that's really hard to take in because they think progress, progress, progress. That's what the left brain, you know, this is left mm-hmm. brain dominant thinking is, oh, we're great. And, you know, what, you feel something? Oh, no, that's ridiculous. Or... <laughs> transpersonal, transrational, spiritual stuff. Ah, that's ridiculous. That's the left brain, right? So I only want static dead things to manipulate and categorize and anything, you know, you can see and touch. That's it. Uh, Everything else is false. And so you feel terribly anxious because that's no way to live. (laughs) It's kind of disembodied. (laughs) Disembodied, but death is coming. (laughs) Totally. It sounds like uh, I don't know, but some I heard some echoes of maybe Ian McGillscrest's work at all. Yeah, I don't know if, right. if you if that uh, yeah. informs some of your um, articulation of that, I know you have your own rich tradition in, in in speaking to that. But I just heard some of those echoes, so I thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, and he argues in the Master and His Emissary that the Western world has been taken over by left brain dominance rather than an integrated brain orientation. And I argue, and Alan Shore based on Ellen Shore, that the right hemisphere is underdeveloped uh, in early life. When you don't provide the nest, then you uh, have gaps and you don't feel good about yourself. You're not regulated. Your empathy is lower. All sorts of things that are right governed, at least early on, don't develop properly. And the vagus nerve is part of that. Uh, and then when you're in, in your adulthood, you feel like you have a gap in yourself. You're, who am I? You know, you're kind of hollow. Mm. Totally. Clinically, I see that all the time. The, you know, the egoic justification system has is not provide the development hasn't provided the coherent integration across body, heart, mind, and spirit. And I mean that you know, just a trans egoic sense of oneness with whatever that affords you the realization that it's not just your damn life. It's actually your life is a thread in a larger tapestry, right? Yeah, um, but we don't we don't teach that, especially the capital labor egoic, you know, Trump version of. <laughs> It's not exactly clear that the ego isn't all right. And I was like, no, we, we do way too much of that. So and then how the ego tries to with its anxious defensive structure and its own emptiness or darkness tries to kind of justify and rationalize and identify what the threats are on the outside. I mean, it's a really, really common narrative that it manifests itself in a lot of depressed, anxious, angry, irritable struggles that we have. And we yeah. have to um, figure out what's going on. And I think you really diagnose a huge part of this with the evolved nest. We haven't really express, explicitly stated that. So how about we take some time and help people understand what you mean by this concept? Sure. Yeah. So we are embodied creatures. We are biosocial. It means our biology is constructed by our social experience. 
and our social capacities are are shaped by our biology. So we're just kind of this intertwining of epigenetics, plasticity, of co-construction by our experience of who we become. Mm-hmm. And uh, with undercare, I'll talk about the nest in a second. When you don't have the nest, you get you're undercared for, and you then develop all these defenses. And it's like your your uh, your real self is locked down in this chamber of prison. Yeah, and you've mm-hmm. locked it all in because nobody attended to you and to that uniqueness Mm -hmm. and so you had to hide it right Mm -hmm. and then to unlayer it my goodness it takes so much time with therapy and Mm -hmm. other things so the nest um so before we have nine components we've identified now and these are uh apparent in our small band hunter-gatherer cousin communities Mm-hmm. And apparent throughout uh, for probably a million years of our existence in cooperative companionship mm-hmm. uh, societies. And we have a movie people should see. Six-minute movie, BreakingTheCyclefilm.org. I just actually watched it prior to it's oh, a glorious okay. movie. We'll put it in the um, we'll put it in the show notes here. It's a beautiful, okay. uh, you know, quick, you know, in this time age. Uh, we, but it really hits the uh, home the point. Points. So uh, yeah. we'll put that in the. Uh, in the links too. Yeah, um, so the yeah. Uh, the first component of the nest then is the soothing perinatal experiences. So prenatal, gestationally, the mother feels mm-hmm. supported so that the biochemistry mm-hmm. is going on well for that baby's growth and uh, doesn't develop into irritability, which stress high cortisol levels and mm-hmm. uh, affect the baby's then irritability after birth, <clears throat> which makes it harder to care for that baby. Um, okay. So, and the birth is uh, soothing and uh, there's no separation of the baby from the mother. Mm-hmm. There's no pain for procedures, no circumcision, no, uh, you know, any mm-hmm. harsh lights and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the, there's time for the mom and baby to bond. Their, mm-hmm. their uh, reward systems are highly energized at, during natural birth to glom mm-hmm. onto each other and just mm-hmm. you know, completely meld into that inner subjectivity, the resonance. Uh, and if you interfere with that, then that can be, you know, the energy flows away, right? It's like mm-hmm. interrupting someone having sex, right? And then mm-hmm. right, and start back in where you were. Oh, no, it doesn't mm-hmm. work, right? So <laughs> um, so that's soothing perinatal experience. The baby's needs are met early on. They're kept right. calm. Very important to keep that baby calm for the biochemistry to work well. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'll make a comment just about the, a few of these. So, so the um, basically the basic sense of the animal body, whether it's stressed and pressed uh, or or relaxed and safe, is crucial in the basic structural organization. Okay, and then the priming of birth creates uh, all sorts of flux in the system. Okay, uh, and then the flux in the system is really primed to get harmonized and resonance. And that's what you're talking about in relationship to the attachment system very early on is then gonna be tracking. Uh, if you track some of the early, there's rooting reflex, of course, now there's experience of needing to be held, there's eye to eye contact, there's rhythmic bodily um, affective relating. And essentially what I would say is basically what you have is the attachment system, okay? coming online and trying to get co-regulated very early in relationship to the process and the syncing up of that, uh, of mother offspring in a positive network, you know, looping with, with, where you can signal attention, care, knowing and value what the needs are, feedbacking loop that creates one particular kind of structure. You disrupt that structure, like you said, and then all of a sudden the vulnerabilities 
and the possibilities of that developmentally then getting stacked into all sorts of different other kinds of issues, very, very um, concerning. So we're trying to lay the groundwork here for a, an evolving to secure attachment dance relationship that then gets internalized in the system uh, and gets layered on top of that through developmental experiences. Very good. Yeah. So it's a trajectory of wellness, right? So when you provide that, uh, and if you don't provide it, then you're now risk factors, all sorts of risk factors for trajectory of trauma uh, uh, and illness and ill being mm -hmm. that just accumulate over time too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then the, the second one is breastfeeding on mm -hmm. request. And that's from the beginning. Uh, uh, colostrum has vitamin K and and helps the baby uh, with immunity and uh, the immediate breastfeeding helps the mother with uh, prevent hemorrhaging and such. Uh, and under natural conditions, the baby will actually crawl up and uh, manipulate the nipple to start mm -hmm, the mm -hmm, milk mm -hmm. and the oxytocin flow and yeah. let down, which is all related. Uh, and that breast milk is tailored to the gender of the child, tailored huh. to the this whether they're in a growth spurt or not, different mm -hmm. amounts of fat are provided. If there's an infectious agent in the region, the mother's body produces an antibody. Uh, it's just this magic elixir. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we hardly understand it, uh, but it's got all the immunoglobulins uh, needed for the immune system development. It's 80% alive, all sorts of enzymes, feeding mm -hmm. the microorganisms for a, a healthy gut. Most of the mm -hmm. immune system is in the gut. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, you don't want to feed anything else because it, the breast milk also provides a biofilm through the intestines and the digestive mm. system to keep out infectious agents. And once mm. you start feeding something else, it breaks that biofilm. Mm. So you want to uh, have exclusive breastfeeding for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and for our ancestral context, the average, uh, what's been uh, observed is two, two and a half years to eight yeah. years of breastfeeding. Mm. Well, that would change some of the norms at eight, at eight years. You know, you just blew <laughs> some of the, what? You know, did you say eight? And it's like, yeah, it goes pretty far. <laughs> it's actually been observed too at other ages, like 11. And so, yeah. <laughs> but. Well, we can pause yeah. at eight. That's it. We'll go far enough at that juncture. <laughs> uh, we're just so, uh, yeah. Right, obviously. We're talking about sex here. This is making me feel funny. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so why four years? Because it's got immunoglobulins. It's building everything that brain, brain and body needs, right? It's uh, got tryptophan, which is a precursor of serotonin, mm -hmm. and it, it uh, makes the baby sleepy. It um, produces that. The breasts produce that in the evening. So you don't want to give evening milk during the day. So you have to mark your, oh. your pumping. Uh, you've got to mark your bottles when you uh, got that milk. Really? <laughs> oh. I didn't know that. Uh, because the early morning milk is giving uh, uh, energy boosting okay. <laughs> elements. So you need to be careful uh, about when you're giving which kind of milk. Oh, fascinating. Uh, in the bottle, yeah. And um, so tryptophan is... It's like nature really fine grain that stuff, huh? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> in the bucket. <funk. laughs> and our milk is thin of a thin variety. Predator milk is thick so that the mom can go off and, and, uh, and hunt. Okay. Ours is thin, which means that the baby is supposed to be ingesting it frequently because it's mm -hmm. mostly sugars and it's got all these things that are building the brain and the brain is growing so rapidly, you know, thousands mm -hmm. of synapses or brain connections are growing every second. And, uh, and so uh, on average, every 20 minutes um, at first uh, for a new wow. mm -hmm. full-term birth. Because uh, the stomach is so tiny anyway, yep. mm -hmm. so it empties right away. And uh, so when you 
And in our ancestral context, anybody will suckle a child if the child starts to get fussy, you know, and they, mm-hmm. you pay attention to, you know, whether it's starting to make a face or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Of course, you're on bodies all the time in these mm-hmm. contexts. Uh, and then you move in and do something. And the, the best response is always to suckle, even if it's a guy or a grandma. Mm-hmm. They'll put the baby to the nipple because it's very calming. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like external pacifier, right? Right. A bo- right. Embodied pacifier. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. And that brings up, uh, well, maybe that will become about, but certainly uh, a distributed network of caregivers is something that is part of the structure as well. Maybe that's down the line, but you're certainly alluding to it. Oh, we can talk about it. Uh, I mean, the order is arbitrary almost, except Mm -hmm. for birth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) uh, So, yeah, alloparents or allomothers or Mm -hmm. other mothers than other than the mom. That's how usually it's considered. And uh, that's uh, these people are there. And, and at least the research that in the West has shown at least three people in love with the baby is important. Mm. So it's mom, dad, usually and grandma, usually mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. like that. Right. And so they're all there available. Mm. Now, in our ancestral context, the mother's always typically always around for a young child. But uh, half the time the young child's being held by someone else. Mm-hmm. The mom's is nearby, mother's nearby, so that if there's some issue that can't be settled by someone else, the mom can move in. Right. <clears throat> so it's not that you have L appearance and the mom leaves and goes off to work right. <laughs> and right. never is around. So that we're doing some very risky things now, uh, even if they are attached to the alternative, not the non-moms mm-hmm. carriers. Right. But these people are really needed for mom to be responsive to her child. So in mm-hmm. our ancestral context, uh, well, in the studies that have been done with primates and um, moms are not going to be responsive if the community is not welcoming to mm. that child, to that mm. offspring. Yep. Uh, and so I, I think we can see that too. Well, it's also because we stress parents so much now in the States that they can't be responsive, Right. Right. You got to go to work in six weeks. So I'm not going to breastfeed my baby. That's yep. what moms or they, I don't want to touch my baby, you know, after birth. It's really crazy stuff we've done. We've broken. There's a caregiving attachment system also, you know, of, of wanting to care oh, for sh- that child. That's that, that part of that bonding it's early the on. dance. It's an attachment dance is a two way, yeah. uh, you know, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we've, we've uh, you know, stressed that to the breaking point for many moms, I think. And then right. they have children. And they don't feel like they want to hold them. And Bruce right. Perry writes about this in his book, uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, mm. <clears throat> uh, which is a yeah a lot of uh, different cases. So alloparents, really important. Um, Stephanie Kuhn says, uh, most societies have thought that parent child raising is too important to be left to parents alone. <laughs> yep. Sounds like yeah. some good wisdom, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Not that we follow that. In fact, we, you know, we put an enormous amount of pressure on parents to be yeah. almost the sole caregivers in many contexts. And and the responsive caregivers, uh, I'm sorry, the allo parents are going to be the same people, right? Stable relationships, not a, a stranger daycare. Mm. That's not going to work because the child needs a responsive, ongoing relationship with mm-hmm. multiple people. Because you develop stories together, you develop little routines together. You uh, you're not a stranger. The totally. baby feels like they're known. Really important, right? Known and totally. loved. And so uh, the the childcare issue now that's going around. I mean, we really need parental leave pay 
Mm. Uh, for like three years. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> we need to pay the billionaires. Let's pay the parents. Right. <laughs> Everybody gets it, no matter who you are. Right. Mm. Super so, crucial. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. All right. So then there's uh, affection, positive uh, affection, and no uh-huh. negative touch. So positive mm. touch. Mm-hmm. And uh, babies expect to be moved a lot because mm-hmm. we. And you know, evolved to be mobile and um, my kids love to be walked them all the time, especially two of them are very they love <laughs> they definitely like get up and walk me around. <laughs> it's like all right. brain development, but it also helps digestion because it's mm-hmm. moving the cilia in the mm. uh, digestive tract that need stimulation early on. So birth is good, uh, vaginal birth is good because it stimulates the immune system, stimulates intelligence, some research is showing. And if you have a cesarean, mm. those things don't happen. Mm. So then you got to massage the baby and, and do other interventions to mm. uh, make up for it. So positive touch uh, is uh, pretty constant, 24-7. You know, that's maternal presence usually or caregiver presence. Mm-hmm. Uh, not isolation, not in their own room, not in their own bed, not mm. in their... You know, carrier half the day right. or playpen. No, on your body. That's right. our need. Uh, mm-hmm. and, but we do all sorts of experiments now on kids, and then we look at them and we think, "What's wrong with these people?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> right when they grow up. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to them? <laughs> oh, we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, not me. <laughs> I was spanked, and I'm fine. <laughs> right. Well. <laughs> so the negative touch, we know now that spanking long-term is just like emotion or, phys- or, or physical abuse, mm. negative outcomes on children. So, but in the States, half of parents report spanking their one-year-old children. One years old. Wow. Yeah. No, that's, uh, we should be also clear, I think, or at least uh, uh, I'll throw this out there. The time frame here is really key. These, these early six months, early two year, you know, this infant development period is really to to avoid harmful touch and to maintain responsibility, responsivity, sort of on-demand breastfeeding, that kind of thing. Would you say it's particularly important, you know, in in this early period, or is it just to, or for you, sort of like, hey, it's just crucially all the way through? I mean, it's certainly important all the way through. I'm just wondering if you see sort of developmental sensitive periods where it's particularly heightened. Yeah, the earlier is more sensitive, and it's, again, setting that trajectory. So Mm -hmm. you want to have the right trajectory going. If you start to, you know, risk factors, you degrade Mm -hmm. the trajectory, and things start to mess up and and just accumulate snowballs, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's early, but I I would say till about age six, Mm -hmm. things really have to go well, Mm -hmm. um, ideally. And then you've got a resilient person. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, they will be confident and they will feel uh, at home in the world and they will be able to do anything almost. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can see this in some of the uh, homeless kids in Africa where they had a good beginning. And then they're, you know, they're actually controlling their lives, even though they're um, the street children. They're able to do things without the aggression and the, the harm making mm-hmm. <laughs> hurtful behaviors that we see right. in the normal Right. This is so it's really built in the human primate architecture. Uh, and, and you'll actually see, you know, at six is a time when they start when, you know, they start become, you know, quasi persons at the level of you know, responsibility and justification and regulation. It's really getting the architecture of that um, that happens in the first six, uh, the ground of that, the primate ground of that in, in the right um, developmental track is what I'm hearing. 
I probably not call it primate. It mm-hmm. uh, there's um, just learning about this rather recently that uh, our shift a million years ago or so. Uh, well, maybe it's not that far back, but anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we developed a very big social brain. We shifted right. away from the apes. Yeah, the apes are hierarchical, at least the chimps. Right, and uh, we shifted to a huge brain and the. Dominant hypothesis, I think, is that that social brain uh, required um, this cooperative nest nesting, cooperative child raising, and uh, the um, control of women, females over Mm -hmm. the males, alpha male behavior. And Mm -hmm. so they would fool them with um, uh, who's who's fertile or not. Mm. And have some rituals, uh, full moon rituals and all this stuff, where they ha- they went hunting, and then because uh, you need meat for this big brain, mm-hmm. so you need the males to go and hunt, uh, feed the children, and mothers uh, had some control over that, and so mm. we didn't get the big alpha males that we have dominating the world now, mm-hmm. uh, in part because of this social brain shift, which yep. requires mind reading, requires yep. and, and moved into egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Uh, which apes don't have as much, although the definitely not. Are, are uh, yeah. So, uh, so I mean, it's maybe you are. I certainly would rely on Michael Tomasello's work in this area. Uh, it's work mm-hmm. on become, becoming human and theory of ontogeny. It certainly speaks to very much these. I know lots of people um, are pointing in this direction, but this of capacity for an implicit shared we space to create a network. Uh, of cooperative capacities that are qualitatively different than the other apes, the way in which we can even, you know, the young kids, you point, you look, there's a shared attention, intention, capacity, and then to be good members that are coordinating around a particular group is a very, very strong and pretty unique human capacity. Certainly bonobos do interesting things with the way they create matriarchies, but um, yeah, no, this is uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I would certainly concur that it's primate, but we're about a million to a half million years ago, our primate heritage before our cultural justification system laid down a social networking capacity uh, for intersubjective we space that's different than all the others as far as we tell. That's at least. Yeah, and I'm relying on Sarah Hurdy, H-R-D-I, okay, sure. her work yep. and yep. her colleagues on this shift in the importance of the cooperative nesting. She yep. calls it cooperative breeding, which sounds a little offensive, I think. <laughs> no, she's a great, uh, you know, anthropologist, primatologist. I can't remember exactly what her um, history is, but she wrote Mothers and Others, and it's a wonderful, yeah. uh, it has lots of brilliant things to say about this, 100%. Right. Okay, so we've done the birth, breastfeeding, aloe parents, and touch. Um, and then we have the um, positive climate. Uh, mm-hmm. We separate that one out. That's the welcoming okay. climate that fosters the positive emotions of play and love and care. Mm-hmm. And we can see this in the uh, reports of the hunter-gatherer societies that they spend a lot of time enhancing one another's well-being, you know, mm-hmm. and having fun and enjoying one another, uh, rather than uh, having a, a climate, emotional climate of despair or anger mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. humiliation or fear, right? Those are all things mm-hmm. that, that shape the brain differently then. Uh, so that's the welcoming climate. And we find in our research with adults who report on their childhoods that those with more of the evolved nest mm-hmm. in general are have more secure attachment. They're better able at taking perspectives of others mm-hmm. and they're more open-hearted versus mm-hmm. those who 
don't have it. Hmm. Interesting. Open-hearted, like in a trait openness sense or open-hearted in a... Yeah, they report then being uh, uh, oriented to uh, relationships. Of, mm, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And more relational. Rather okay. than yep. uh, mm-hmm. you know, oppositional or, you know, yep. or withdrawn. Yep. Mm-hmm. Personally distressed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in uh, we put this in unified theory language on the matrix. There's the affiliation. This is the capacity to identify with others across a wide variety of different networks and foster belonging, connection, shared interests, uh, as opposed to the dominance blue line. That's going to rank competitive or distancing line. That's a green line. Of, you know, we need freedom. We can't be too enmeshed. Um, my understanding of what a lot of what cultural hunter-gatherer sites tend to do is to foster affiliation and autonomy simultaneously, and they really downplay, you know, sort of egoic uh, rank competition. Right. That's right. Yeah. So you have uh, uh, follow your impulses, essentially, and those impulses, though, have been well raised, <laughs> mm-hmm. so they don't take you outside of an empathic kind of corral or um, fencing. Right, you don't mm-hmm. do things to kill someone else or to harm mm-hmm. them, because you, you learned you were immersed in this very uh, loving, uh, supportive environment where you were treated as a sacred being. You might be grandfather reincarnated for heaven's sake. You mm-hmm. know, the child right. carefully then, no. uh, and that's pretty you know mm-hmm. common around the world. Uh, and so you have a sense of being connected always to others. And why would you break those bonds? That's right. you do it accidentally and then you need some healing about it, but mm-hmm. you don't do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. That's insanity. Mm-hmm. You know, the self-interest that M- Marshall Silence has a little book called the Western illusion of human nature. <laughs> and he says, selfish self-interest, that would be insane or immoral all over the world. And yet that's what we think is normal in the yep. Western dominant culture, you know. No, that's, that's something else. The, the Enlightenment was a little bit of swing and a miss on the Enlightenment there. Right. <laughs> enlightenment. Right, right, right. That, a little ironic twist of that. Little ego, ego inflation. Egoic blue line activity where somebody justified shit that they probably shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, so let's see. Then we have uh, play, self-directed free play. Uh, so this is not organized sports activities. This no. is not game board activities, although that might be on the borderline, but this is like playing chase, tag, climbing trees, uh, hide and seek, uh, wrestling, that that kind of where you have to control your, learn to control yourself to keep the play going or the partner will leave if you get too aggressive, right? And so it's uh, building the brain, uh, turning on genes of all kinds, uh, helping you control aggression, build Mm -hmm. leadership skills, social skills, uh, growing that right hemisphere even later in life as an adult <clears throat> uh, therapist suggests, you know, go uh, learn to dance, you know, for these, you know, I'm thinking of Dan Siegel. He talks about uh, couples coming in after the empty nest and the woman's ready to go see the world. And the guy just wants to sit in his man cave, you know, and do nothing except, you know, hit the remote. Uh, and so he sees that as a right hemisphere underdevelopment. Mm-hmm. Which shows up then later, right? It shows up in different ways throughout life. But at that point, he suggests then go learn to dance, go mm. learn to do art or do something. I yep. suggest go play with a young child because you mm. have to be present moment to grow that right hemisphere. It's going to mm-hmm. grow. It will mm. grow at any point. And nice. so play with a kid who's going to, you know, just be silly and run around. Yeah. In my classes uh, with my students, we learn folk song games. Mm. So 
uh, things like the hunting we will go where you're doing, you know, people walking through and yeah. it's like catch them and then the circle gets bigger and then everyone's trying not to get caught, but then they eventually all get caught and you're singing and you're talking, you're looking at each other and all sorts yeah. of games like that because I was a music teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learn these games so that they feel social joy in the moment because right. a lot of our kids are not having enough of that experience they're sitting alone in their cribs play pens with screens <laughs> on tv no. whatever it is no <laughs> that's not how you build a social capacious person and so these games get people in the moment and then we teach we would teach them to the kindergartners Yep. And then the kids, the undergraduates would watch these kindergartens go, yeah, you know, and they're jumping around like, oh, my God, look at how much fun they're having. And that inspires them to be a little more silly, you know. 100 percent. Yeah. No. Yeah. My mom is an award winning educator and professor of early childhood education. So we got a, I got a good I know what a good kindergarten teacher looks like. Uh, through her and it's all this social play creativity exploration positive communal uh, engagement I mean just you you really are describing her classroom in a really nice way here so yeah marvelous yeah unfortunately a lot of kindergartners are not or kindergartens aren't doing that anymore well and teachers are leaving it's a nightmare vicious cycle you know the the creative Mm -hmm. the, the freedom to create the real dynamic participatory relations is now trying to get people trying to regulate stuff so much and then they regulate it right out. And then the people that are actually doing it, at least this is my mom's narrative, people that are like wanting to do it are not really well suited to do it. And the people that are well suited to create this dynamic relational um, oral indigenous, you know, is like, no, I, I can't live in this world. <laughs> so they leave. So the, there's a dearth of real, so it's a real problem, you know, in our educational system. It's a, right. It's and then there's a focus on reading in kindergarten. That's yeah. No, it's a, no it's a, it drops everybody out of the, right. Drops everybody out of the six year development, right. Because it's right hemisphere. Yeah. It's the right brain that's supposed to be developing through experience. It's, it's, You're supposed to be collecting life experience and the right hemisphere does that. And then it transfers to the left to, you know, and analyze and then sends it mm-hmm. back for intu- intuitive analysis too. And, uh, Kids who don't play, who don't get out, they're just sitting in front of screens. They're not collecting anything, right? So then you can manipulate them with information, false mm. information, because they have nothing to go on. They have no world experience. Mm. Uh, and, you you know, it's really a deprivation. And yeah. that kindergarten period in the early first six years is really important, but so is the rest of childhood for that. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Beautiful. So we, I mentioned responsive relationships. So that means mm-hmm. with multiple people so that you learn how to adjust to these mm-hmm. new people, but they're the same stable relationships across mm-hmm. time, especially mm-hmm. important mm-hmm. in the first six years. Uh, and you, um, because there's evidence that if you only have mom to relate to, that you, you get pretty stiff about relationships. You get mm-hmm. scripted in your relationship, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In expectations. So you need to be more flexible and that's what this, um community yep. provides then yeah, it can be a rich repertoire of uh, working models both in the real world and then that you carry around with you to apply um, yeah yep yep so birth breastfeeding touch climate play alloparents um and uh responsiveness responsive relationships and there's two more one is the nature connection so our species evolved with the natural world, co-evolved with all sorts of relationships with 
you know, especially microorganisms. We're mm-hmm. filled with microorganisms keeping our bodies alive. Mm-hmm. 90 to 99% of the genes we carry are not human. They're the microorganisms that we mm-hmm. carry. So mm-hmm. when you talk about genetic competition, huh? what does that mean? <laughs> We're actually walking ecologies, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. And so that breast milk is really important for mm. populating a good microbiome. Mm. Uh, and Nature Connection is uh, critical for our mental health. So mm-hmm. earthing, you know, lying on the ground, you know, actually restores our energy. We're in bodies of energy. Uh, sunning uh, is so important and just being feeling like we are safe out in the natural world so connecting right. to this tree uh, related and partnering with this river uh, concerned about the health of this mountain or whatever it is that that's part of our heritage and yep. we have really isolated ourselves civilization you know we've walled in uh, not only our psyches but God you know put God inside in the church <laughs> building <laughs> Whereas, you know, Aquinas said that's two ways to God. One is the Bible. The other is nature. Mm. Sign <laughs> uh, me up. So, <laughs> right, let's go. Unfortunately, we're killing off all sorts of diversity. Right. Uh, we're the four horsemen of the apocalypse now, right? The massive toxification of soil, air, water. Uh, we have wildlife uh, extinction all mm-hmm. over the place of all kinds, insects. I try to have a very insect-friendly uh, yard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My husband used to roll his eyes at me, but now he's a little more amenable to it. <laughs> Other people poison their yards, right? But they all mm-hmm. come over here. <laughs> Yay, I, saw, I saw a few bees today, you know. Wow. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and we also then have the climate instability, right? And uh, atmosphere degradation. So that's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Okay, that's good to get that list. Yep. No, I'm that's, familiar with those, but I haven't heard that frame exactly. But, you know, that sounds yeah, about well, right. Yeah, E.O. Wilson predicted that or or mentioned those in the early 90s, actually. Uh, So there's probably more. The Millennial Eco Assessment of the UN said that uh, we are every virtually every ecosystem on the planet is under duress from human activity. And that was in 2005. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, anyway, so our Mm -hmm. nature connection is Mm -hmm. uh, so it's that uh, Wendell Berry, the activist poet, said, you know, we know all this stuff about how to treat the natural world and how to, you know, be more responsible. And all. It's not working to know stuff. You got to mm. feel it. You have yeah. to feel connection. It all turns on affection, he said. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we did an experiment um, that was published last year where we had undergraduates uh, in uh, two conditions. One was uh, conservation condition. The other one was the ecological attachment condition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They came into the lab and took a pretest, mm-hmm. and then they were randomly assigned. Well, before that, they were randomly assigned mm-hmm. to the, one of the conditions, and then they read um, some information about their condition. So mm-hmm. it was facts, an essay, mm-hmm. and a poem about right. why you know okay. why it's important and all that. And then they had were presented with about forty different activities, mm-hmm. and they picked twenty one of those that okay. were related to the condition to take with them. Mm. And then for the next three weeks, they pick one out of the envelope and do that all day. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so for conservation was turn off the faucet when you're brushing your teeth, turn off the lights when you leave the room. For the ecological attachment um, <coughs> condition, it was things like uh, pay attention to the clouds today, hmm. acknowledge the trees you walk by on campus mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. Right? And so then they came back for a post-test. Both of them increased in mindfulness, ecological mindfulness, but only the 
ecological attachment actually increased in ecological empathy, which is what we're trying to get to, right? Nice. Interesting. And so we have uh, I put those activities into something the public can do at ecoattachmentdance.dance. Uh, and they can do one thing a day, you know, pick one. It's 28 mm. days. Hmm. Uh, so nature connection is really important for our mental health, for the well-being of the planet. Yeah. Totally. There's a whole, uh, folks may or may not know, there's actually now a established branch journal called Eco-Psychology, um, where folks are really attending to our relationship to the environment at multiple levels, you know. Um, uh, but certainly one of them is the our uh, affection, attachment, embodiment in nature itself and how we feel in that relationship. And many people really do, like we're nature famished, we're completely alienated uh, from that. And that there's definitely many good reasons to believe that shrinks our soul, as it were. Yeah, our paper was published in Eco Psychology. Um, mm, okay. uh, Richard Louvre calls it nature deficit disorder. Yeah, that's, I was actually, thank you for that. I was actually, couldn't quite access that, whatever neuron, uh, but that's exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, I yeah. like the famished though. Oh, that's mm, a good, mm, good, mm. good uh, word for it. All right. Then the last one is uh, healing practices, routine healing practices. Mm. So in our ancestral context, there are all of, uh, the San Bushmen, for example, mm -hmm. several times a week. They'll have dances and trances, uh, trance dancing to for grief. Oh. Uh, and uh, then there's your uh, individual healing or relational bonding or, you know, respect for the natural world. A lot of those <laughs> for the Native Americans, mm. uh, their regular routines. So we, uh, as the animal who can make the most, uh, has the most capacity to make decisions, often makes a lot of mistakes. And so we need to restore the balance of our relationships with the natural world, with one mm. another in our, mm. in our own selves, right? So we can mm. help doubt when something goes wrong. Or something. Mm -hmm. So these routine healing practices are then um, aimed at restoring that balance. You can let go of grief, let go of resentment, let go mm -hmm. of, you can be here now. You know, your heart is here, right. you're open, you're flexible, you're attuned in the right. moment and not controlled by you know, conditioned uh -huh. responses or fears or whatever it was, you didn't finish healing. Right? Sure, <laughs> of course. Wow, how, yeah, somehow I'd missed that. That's beautiful and so crucial to, I mean, more, you know, my basic frame is that we are, we're this stacked body, heart, mind, cross past. What's the coherent integrated flow? You know, negative events, negative feelings, conflicts, et cetera, happen. And then the question is, how does that get metabolized into the structure? or not, right? Uh, and so much of what's going on now is just an inability to coherently metabolize the stack as it were. Uh, and so just to hear a system where you would yeah, have regular capacities to take time out, to create the space to metabolize healing, take acknowledgement of this, be present with that and do that, have that built into the structure in a systemic, you know, ritualized, rich spiritual way. That's, a, that's beautiful. Yeah, and imagine doing it around a fire. Yeah, like with that group. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder my half human over here. Shit. <laughs> yeah. So that's the evolved nest. Yeah, it's glorious. We, need, we uh, it's only those first two things that are only babies, right? Birth mm -hmm. and right. Uh, but the rest of it, we need it all. Yeah. No, that's it. <laughs> and so that this is the thing to really understand. Uh, that this to me, this is the. The richness of what we mean by nature, you know, is to structure the fundamental understanding 
uh, of ourselves in relationship to each other, in relationship to Mother Earth, and and create a particular. We are built for a particular kind of expected developmental trajectory. When that gets net and stacked and channeled in a particular way, voila! You know, obviously things can happen, but there's a and when we deviate enormously from that. Um, and I think about the unbelievable, I mean, I'm glad psychology is maybe moving in the right direction, but some of the unbelievable errors of our hyper-rationalistic scientific structure, um, which of course then are just embedded from the modernist enlightenment in quotes, um, sets of ideas. It's really, I hope we'll be able to wake up pretty soon here. Yes, there's a lot of lot going on at the local levels around mm -hmm. the world. Just that the structures, the power structures, are just so leaden. <laughs> so uh, no, we built it. We're right. You know, we're on. A, you know, we're in an institutional structure that's got so much inertia and power structures that are meant to maintain that inevitably. So um, I don't know. Um, so that there are a couple of then other things that I definitely want to sort of. Uh, so we have the nest, and then one of the things that I'm really interested in relationship to that is this concept of wisdom, which you mentioned in this book. Uh, and I believe that you've actually, uh, in terms of your your own uh, developmental morality, have really looked at indigenous populations and their uh, and their wisdoms. Maybe even doing that recently. Um, I'd love to hear your reflections about the concept of wisdom and where you are in relationship to thoughts about that idea. Yeah. So uh, uh, Four Arrows and I have a book in press on re restoring the kinship worldview, which is a wise way to live. Uh, and mm. uh, I'm gonna get the list here from my computer, but we have 28 precepts that we mm. uh, talk about. Uh, and he, in a prior publication, actually had 40. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's, this is a lot of right brain uh, way to live, right? That the left brain always likes to sort things and name them. And so it's just a sample <laughs> of what it what it really entails because um, a lot of things can't be put into words or you know you have to experience it to understand it and um, so actually my friend John Bravaki makes a, this another kind of critique against the Enlightenment it was a, one of the shifts was that oh if you just analytically understood stuff and you just learn how to manipulate things you'd come to your logical conclusions where it's virtually all other developmental philosophies were like no there's the embodied developmental experience of learning that's required uh, to enact this rather than you know high level procedural an analytic deductive stuff that then allows you to sort of draw a conclusion you know through logical analysis so it, right. that's a I just make that comment as we set this up here it's good even piaget knew that right he yeah. studied the <laughs> implicit cognition to begin with right mm -hmm. but he was interested in when people could articulate Mm -hmm. a scientific uh whatever knowledge and stuff mm -hmm. so that, mm -hmm. that was just his focus because that he was by, uh, uh shaped by western philosophy in what is important <laughs> and that's reasoning and articulation of reasoning <clears throat> uh so the dominant worldview uh so i'll just give a few examples right it has the mm -hmm. orientation to hierarchy the indigenous worldview is not non-hierarchical and that means even with the bio community you know, that you're not better than the plant or the animal. You have to be respectful in your relations. Mm. Uh, dominant view is fear-based uh, rather than courageous and fearless. Trust mm. in the universe, which is the indigenous perspective. Mm -hmm. And there's an understanding that you can become afraid, but they 
have methods for working through the fear into courage, being aware that when you are afraid, you're more easily hypnotized <clears throat> by authorities, by words, uh, and you can move then into the uh, harmful mm -hmm, uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand how you're hypnotizable mm -hmm. and, and work against that. And so Four right. Arrows has done uh, considerable work in that area. Uh, life is socially purposeful rather than doing whatever you want or, mm -hmm. you know, not feeling connected to the community. Mm -hmm. There's an emphasis on community welfare then, not personal gain. Mm -hmm. uh, respect for various gender roles and fluidity rather mm -hmm. than, you know, rigid stereotypes for gender. Mm -hmm. Non-materialism, you know, that the they practice generosity, really important central virtue uh, to give away something you really love, someone mm. else, uh, and to keep the gifts flowing. So in uh, Widlock, Thomas Widlock's work on sharing <laughs> shows that sharing and generosity is just a fundamental um, practice. And it's not like, it's not reciprocity. It's not, it's mm -hmm. not exchange. It's not reciprocity. It's the, the people who need more get more. Mm. Uh, and that's babies, of course, mm -hmm. but old people... <laughs> or someone impaired or whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's just no sense of uh, keeping track. It's just the mm -hmm. way the world works. And we know just that's true about nature. Fundamental pro-social pro identity, basically, just baked in. Mm. Yeah, and that na the natural world is that way. It's always mm -hmm. giving, giving and giving and giving, and people take, right? And we, our waste is some other animal's food, mm -hmm. right? Or some, mm -hmm. you know, so it's this cycle of, of, of a gift economy that we forgot or capitalism stops. Mm -hmm. um, prevents from working then uh, earth systems are considered as living and loving mm -hmm. so that you can trust the natural world rather than be afraid of it or control it or manipulate mm -hmm. it but you partner with it instead mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the emphasis of heart overhead <laughs> which we've been talking about mm -hmm. uh, and competition is only uh, for building positive potential not mm -hmm. to not to win over another, uh, but to build your own uh, skills, right. uh, improve your own skills. So even in uh, like a, a game, um, soccer, football or something, uh, the native team will maybe score a goal or something. And mm -hmm. then they'll lay back a bit and let the other team score mm. because you're working on your own skills. You're not trying mm -hmm. to win anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or if there's a rope contest where you have uh you know, you're pulling the two sides, pulling the rope over the mm -hmm. something. Uh, once this side starts to win, some people from this side will go to that side to help them. Uh, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. some on the winning side will go and help the sure. losing side. To right, you're right, I was following. Uh -huh. so it's more about fun mm -hmm. <laughs> than about uh, winning. Right. Uh, you know, the winning thing is that, again, the survival systems, the territoriality and the the fear of, of not being dominant is mm. all that old, old primate. Mm. Right. <laughs> old and new. <laughs> Chimpanzee in particular. Those guys are particularly brutal. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> yeah. And then there's empathy, very empathic, animistic, mm -hmm. biocentric. So a sense of that the world is sentient. Everything mm. has a, its livingness, mm. uh, consciousness of some kind. Uh, words are sacred. And truthfulness is essential. Hmm. You can see our, our society has really gone in the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> Fair amount of bullshit in this society, I would say. <laughs> yeah, right. So you are careful with what you say. 
And uh, they, so the Native Americans, when the explorers came <laughs> to to North America, they they thought, are these people insane? Because they're lying. Mm. <laughs> they couldn't believe they would lie. Mm. That's not a human thing to do. So they started to have pity on them. Mm. Uh, truth is multifaceted, right? So there's an ability in the uh, in our well ancestral context for polysemy. Have you heard of that? Mm -hmm. That's where sure. you understand sure. things could be more than one thing. So this mm -hmm. this might be a chair, but it might be an elephant. Or, you know, or, you know, so that's a very flux, uh, a sense of a fluctuating dynamic universe. And there's no set identity for anything. Mm. So even a person's name will shift depending on mm. the people he's with. They'll call him something else or, you know, so there's no uh, rigidity in categorization. The left brain stuff. Uh, this is the right, very right brain uh, creative stuff. Mm. Um, flexible boundaries and interconnected systems rather than rigid, rigidity. Regular use of alternative consciousness. Mm. Uh, so not being afraid uh, mm. the, and then learning how to control that or to mm -hmm. go in and out of it. Shamans mm -hmm. do this, mm -hmm. of course, and then mm. they travel uh, to other, uh, into the future sometimes mm -hmm. or into mm -hmm. another place. Mm. Uh, and that's taken it for granted. Uh, mm -hmm. Even being able to predict the future or know what's coming um but we we think all oh, that's crazy you know the left mm. brain, like that <clears throat> it's too uncontrollable <laughs> <laughs> regular let's see the, the recognition of spiritual energies so that transpersonal transrational mm -hmm. understanding that the manifest has there's mm -hmm. like spiritual laws and you have to mm. attention to those as well things you can't mm. see but you uh intuit or you learn to recognize so i call it receptive mm -hmm. intelligence we're missing that now because we don't let kids just sit outside and and uh, babies and you know learn from all just the observe and pull in and perceive yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. my interpersonal engagement and an interconnectedness lots of touching so this is the nest kind of stuff mm -hmm. inseparability of knowledge and action mm. so it's embodied embodied knowledge yep. okay mm -hmm. resistance to authoritarianism <laughs> Mm. Yeah. Uh, time, time is cyclical, not linear. Mm. Intolerance of injustice, and that means mm. for the natural world as well. Mm. Can you say a little bit about where this list came from? How did how, how did you guys uh, arrive at, at this, so uh, this list? This is Four Arrows list. Okay. Uh, originally, mm -hmm. he has been working in the area of of indigenous worldview for some time mm -hmm. and he found a paper i did where i contrasted the today's uh characteristics with our ancestral context and there's some overlap there mm -hmm. uh so that's why we started okay. collaborating in various ways right. so he was uh, surveying and just had uh, his um is he an indigenous person himself as at least uh, he, he found out uh, that he had cherokee blood when he was an uh, adult Okay. Ben Marine. Uh, there's a book written about him, Fearless, because he's had so many adventures. He's quite a mm. person. He's a honky tonk uh, piano competition winner, world <laughs> honky tonk. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things. Uh, so I would look, encourage people to look up Four Arrows Books dot mm. uh, org or dot com. I think is where you okay. find him. So it's mm. Don Trent Jacobs is his uh, regular name. Gotcha. Uh, but he uh, was adopted into the Lakota. I uh, did the Sundance, and then they they adopt people into their 
um, tribe. Mm. You've had quite of a, a bit of experience with uh, various indigenous peoples. Is that fair in terms of your own just uh, kind of learning about them and, and even experiences? Uh, uh, well, not Fine. directly. I would, if I had been uh, 20 years younger, I would have gone to uh, uh, live with the son Bushman and <laughs> whatever. Right, that. right. It, uh, when I was young, we, we did uh, visit various um, indigenous uh, communities when we lived mm-hmm. in speaking countries. But that wasn't, you know, any research. It was just uh, visiting missionaries, really. Mm. Um, so my, my, uh, so I have, I'm Puerto Rican, so I have Taino blood. Okay. So I have my own uh, heritage that just has, I guess, become awakened more huh. in my uh-huh. older age. <laughs> mm. Mm. Well, I, I, there was some conference that you had on, uh, is that, uh, yes. uh, at least that's what I was thinking in terms of there was a, a, a conference true. that yes. connect, bridged indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we had a book, Indigenous Sustainable Wisdom is the book. Uh, and we had a number of uh, natives come. Four Arrows helped organize that. Okay. And uh, we had poets, we had um, storytellers, as well as science and uh, other researchers. So Robin Wall Kimmerer came. Mm. Uh, and um, yeah, so it was really good. Sweet. And now I know you're uh, officially retired, right? From a professor emeritus, is that, uh, or I don't know if that's official status Emerita. yet. Emerita. Emerita, sorry, that's right. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I should get the Latina correct, right? At that level, you would think. Good, but I appreciate that. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you're working on this book. So what's what's retired life uh, been like for you? How How is that? And what kinds of projects are you finding yourself engaged in? I still have a grad student who's finished okay. uh-huh. another year and a half or so. All right. And yeah. That's the nature of doctoral work or, or master's work. Or... <laughs> yeah. And she, I, I had her train in vagal tone analysis. Huh. And so we have a lot of manuscripts coming out of that. We tested, uh, we have a longitudinal sample of moms and kids. And we tested the six, when they were six years old, the vagal tone, both mom and child. And we're finding a lot of, interesting findings there <clears throat> so there's a lot of manuscripts going on there i have another book with uh gay bradshaw who's an animal specialist and it's on the evolved nest and it's integrating animal mammal mostly uh parenting and the evolved nest the human and it's huh. kind of uh, with north atlantic books again it's oh, gonna beautiful. Be fun. so that's in the works and then I have other books like uh, Nested Mom, Nested Baby, a little mm. guidebook for parents that's in the works, too, with an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I have a lot of chapters people ask me to write, so I'm mm. doing a lot of that. Well, you're um, pretty well known in these domains. <laughs> so, you know, it was like, hey, we got to get a chapter from Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like to write some other books, too. But, you know, one thing that I keep seeing that people don't understand is that uh, our heritage is not to be selfish and uh, and aggressive, but that's the assumption that, that so is. many people have, and they come in and mm-hmm. oh, you know, oh, how can we be altruistic? We have a paper. I have a paper with a group of um, others uh, in press with for American psychologists on what we call evolving evolutionary psychology. Oh, so good. we criticize the narrow evolutionary mm-hmm. psychology 
I see mm-hmm. it as focusing on all the pre-human stuff, the primate, yeah. whatever, you know, it's like sex. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> come on. How many of us are obsessing about that? Maybe right. they wrote it. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so we have offer a um, depth, uh, developmental evolutionary psychology theory uh, where, and the questions for that, which, you know, we pay attention to the evolved nest. What's species mm-hmm. typical for mm-hmm. raising us? And for behavior, mm. and instead of asking how can altruism happen, we should be asking what happened that that this species has gotten so uncooperative with the natural totally. world, <laughs> like any right. other species. <laughs> right. Nice. There's a book called Humanity. I'm blanking on the person's name, but um, I, I can put it in the notes also. That tries to makes the pro-social case about our natures. Also, yeah. that came out in the last year or so. I read the humankind. Uh, I think so. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but yeah, no, that's a crucial, I mean, let's face it. Obviously if we get socialized a particular way, we can, you know, we can be aggressive and self-centered and, and all of that. We have that potential, but the issue is what is it? If we are tracking our evolved nest in a particular way, the direction of our development is clear in that regard. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say if, if we're undercared for, neglected mm-hmm. or traumatized we can go at certain periods students we can um, move into that aggressive survival system orientation but that's not who we are that's not our heritage and it certainly is leads us away from wisdom i've <laughs> <laughs> across virtually every wisdom tradition i might add you know right. so the, virtually all of them are pretty clear about that well let me ask you this then in terms of just kind of where you you know we're in a really interesting time <laughs> And I like to check and see where people's uh, sense of the kind of horizon that we are, how you make sense out of where we are. Um, you know, what's the, is it an optimistic? Is it a pessimistic? Is it a very mixed uh, feeling? What is your sense about what's uh, on the horizon and how things are uh, going to unfold uh, at wherever you want to enter that very broad question? Yes. Well, I guess in a way I'm optimistic and pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, optimistic in the way that you know we're part of this living earth mm. and when we die we're still part of the earth it's like i'm gonna still my quarks will still be around <laughs> <laughs> and i'll be here to whatever generate help generate the next whatever world mm. the hope say we're in the fourth world and we're destroying we destroyed all the other ones <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so it seems that's what we're doing now. Unless we can shift, it's like we need a virus, a different virus. Right now we're, we're being governed by the Wetico virus. You've heard of that? Mm. The cannibalism of life. So uh, just sucking the life of, out of everything. Uh, Native Americans warned about that. And mm. you can see that that's uh, Jeremy Lent in his new book, The Web of Me. Web of mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I know uh, that book. He mentions that too. Mm. Uh, so um, I think that's, We've got to somehow control those alphas, the alphas that are so scared that they have to have control over everybody, everyone, yeah. uh, and keep and hoard their resources, hoard the money for themselves. They're, it's like, how do we get rid of them? That's the pessimism part. The mm. optimism is we're going to be here anyway. Mm. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't be doing my work if I didn't think there was some chance that we could turn things around now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. from the bottom up i think we have to do it from the bottom up from mm-hmm. uh, local uh transformation mm-hmm. but it also helps to have information about our heritages which mm-hmm. people 
again, misunderstand. They think, oh, this is the way it has to be. Progress, you know, collateral right. damage or we're selfish. There's nothing you can do about it. Aggression, uh-huh. that's normal. Uh, and then they get paralyzed. So right. we have to work through those mis that misinformation, mm-hmm. and we do that with relationships, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. But I, I'm hoping my work can trigger people into in a positive way <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to actually look around them mm-hmm. for ways they can provide the evolved nest wherever they are. Yeah. You can just you know be kind to the people that you meet in the street and say hello. Uh, and there's all sorts of ways to build connection, to feel mm-hmm. connected, to build your feelings of connection, to help others feel connected, to mm-hmm. make them laugh in a positive way, to uh, help out. Uh, all that is what we need. Uh, rather than be afraid and, and hidden or aggressive, you know, and right. dominating, you know, to mm-hmm. learn to self-calm. Mm-hmm. And so that's we have uh, 28 days of self-calming. Mm-hmm. Um also on the, uh, the Evolve Nest, mm-hmm. uh, which mm-hmm. is also things that are science-based and uh, doing that and then building social joy, the way I was talking about the playing with others, right. music right. making and things, uh, and then expand your imagination with the indigenous worldview to understand that the stuff we've been taught and the stuff we kind of tend to take for granted is very rare and recent and strange. <laughs> We are, you know, get back to that, unlock the, yes. the gates and the unlock the cage around your heart and mm. open that up. Now, right. people think, oh, no, it's so scary. I, I don't want to feel my feelings. It's going to mm-hmm. be horrible. That's mm-hmm. why I shut them down when I was a baby, right? Because you were afraid. But once you feel them, it's actually so much liberating. Uh, so right. Then once you get the flow, you know, it hurts yeah. how it happens. And then you metabolize yeah. that thing and then you realize you can actually yeah. integrate the stack through the emotion yeah. rather than yeah. control and break it off, you know. Think about, about it as like a marathon run or something. Mm. You know, effort and mm-hmm. it takes oh pain, but boy, once you're in the flow, it's like it's a, freedom. It's a different place. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Beautiful. Hmm. That's really lovely. And I do want to just say, I think that, you know, you are sort of a, a leading beacon around these issues. Uh, and uh, I think the way you've articulated it, uh, I have, a, I think somewhere, maybe I'll put this, you know, I have the evolved nest. I stuck it on the tree of life. It's like, oh, there it is, you know, because it, um, for me, it, it does really speak to some of the, you know, recaptured wisdom we need to learn, building it with the best science, with a wise view uh, for how we can be good ancestors in, in the long arc of history. And so it's a, and I do feel that there is at least awakening. And I like to think, you know, COVID's obviously create a lot of suffering and things like that. But if one thing it does feel like is that people are waking up to the idea that, huh, this old system <laughs> did some good things for us clearly at one level, but man, it had some things seriously wrong. It's time we need a new operating system. And I think people are looking around for that. And I think they'll uh, find a lot of uh, beautiful wisdom in the things that you've been offering. So I do Thanks appreciate so much. that. So, so thanks so much for coming on uh, and deeply sharing this. And uh, I look forward to hosting it and sharing it. And we'll circle around, back around and have uh, conversations and connections. Uh, so right. thanks so much. I really appreciate you Thank coming you. in. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. All right. That's good. Uh-huh. Take care.